Welcome to Refirement Life, the podcast for anyone navigating life transitions or planning to make life transitions to ensure your next years are your best years. Listen in for insightful, generous, and sometimes humorous conversation. It's time to get fired up with Christine Zamuda and Muge Wood, your hosts for this latest episode of Refirement Life. Hey, welcome to episode 25 of Refirement Life. Today's episode, we are talking about how to thrive to make the world a better place. And I'm very, very, very excited to welcome a really special guest, Karen Sherman. And Karen is the co-founder and CEO of Varunga Mountain Spirits. And this is a, a real passion project, a premier craft distillery based in Rwanda. Karen has had a fascinating background, which we're going to learn all about, 30-year-plus career, uh, she also, prior to this project, served as the president of Aquila Institute, an all-women's college in East Africa. Uh, prior to that, Karen was uh, the senior executive for Women for Women International, and this is an organization that helps women survivors of war to rebuild their lives. And then also she was involved in Counterpart International, a global development agency working to build inclusive sustainability communities. And if that's not enough, Karen has also authored a book, Brick by Brick, Building Hope and Opportunity for Women Survivors Everywhere. And uh, it's just going to be a really um, fascinating session today when we listen to you know how Karen got involved how she followed her calling and what has led her to take on these big projects that are truly game changing for the people of Rwanda um Karen welcome to the show oh thank you so much i'm really happy to be here christine yeah, I'm just I'm just amazed. I, I I when I first for our listeners when I first met Karen and I want to also give a, a real um a sincere thank you to Cheryl Batten who was uh the person who connected both of us and uh, Karen and I both um adore Cheryl. And anyway, so um, when I first met Karen and started to talk to her about her life and and what has led her to these places, I, I just asked, like, you know, where where do people like you come from? You know, you went to Georgetown. Um, you uh, are so accomplished. You speak Russian and uh, mother of three. And now you're going to um, open a, a distillery in Rwanda. I think before we get to that amazing project. Let's first talk about a little bit about your background and you have these experiences in various war-torn transitional countries. How has that shaped your perspective? And um, in, in particular, uh, how has that helped you think about women's roles and how to advance their position in society? Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's it's a great question. And, you know, I've had such a, um, it's been such a privilege to do this work um, over the course of my career. I always feel like I'm one of the luckiest people in the world because I get to surround myself with amazing, fascinating women, women that you would not necessarily meet every day, right? Women in Afghanistan or Congo or South Sudan and women in Rwanda, of course. And, 
You know, what's interesting to me is, um, you know, when I started doing this work, um, I've always kind of taken down women's stories. It's a kind of way that you, um, when you're doing international development, you're looking for success stories, women who've changed their lives, people who've changed their lives, people who've made a difference, people who have risen above their circumstances. And, you know, when I started doing this work, it was always like kind of those women, those people, you know, and it's interesting, um, as my career has progressed, um, it's stopped being about those people and all of us, because, you know, what I have realized through this work, whether it's a woman in Afghanistan, a woman in South Sudan, a woman in Congo, a woman in the United States, there's so much that unites us as women, as human beings, as mothers. And, you know, it's easy um, in our day-to-day -day life to not necessarily connect those dots, right? Um, and I have, um, you know, particularly when I lived in Rwanda with our three sons, um, it was really apparent to me that it was all of our stories. And, you know, um, the title of my book, Brick by Brick, you know, Building Hope and Opportunity for Women Survivors Everywhere, that Survivors Everywhere piece was so intentional because, you know, we think about war survivors as being this, this thing, but, you know, as women, we've survived so much in our lives. It could be the, you know, discrimination, it could be violence, it could be lack of resources or opportunity. And, you know, there's something to be overcome, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I've really carried that lesson through all of my work since. And I'm sure I'm just interviewing these women and seeing what they've overcome was just fuel for the soul. Right. I mean, Absolutely. you can't help it's, but be inspired. Yeah. And, and it, it also, you know, um, I talk about in the book that, you know, pain and suffering is relative and it is. And, you know, and even for a long time, I kind of denied my own pain and my own suffering, the things that were really, um, you know, from childhood or other parts of my life, the thing that things that I carried with me, but, you know, even if pain and suffering is relative, it doesn't mean that it's not real. It doesn't mean that it has it can't be acknowledged and addressed. And that helped me really to get to a new place, to acknowledge it, to 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 embrace it, um, to be able to share my vulnerability and and move to a different place. Absolutely. I mean, pain and suffering is one of life's best teachers, right? I think and, so. And as a result, and I, I, I often, if I, I had some really good advice um, when I was in a difficult situation and then someone told me, hey, you will get gifts from life's most difficult experiences. And when you are seeing people and hearing their stories and you learn more and obviously like one door led to another in your, in your path. Who, who knew you were going to be opening up a <laughs> distillery in Rwanda? Potato vodka distillery, exactly. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, it's it. Um, I like to say that, uh, you know, I, Cheryl Sandberg actually said this, that, you know, it's it's not a ladder, it's a jungle gym. And so it doesn't have to be so linear to be meaningful 
and exciting and feel like a dynamic career. You know, I don't, I think a lot of people said, well, how did you get from doing global development work to starting a craft potato vodka distillery? And, you know, I have to connect the dots for people. In my mind, it's very clear from the time I, the 15 years I worked in the former Soviet Union, we've got the vodka piece, my time in Rwanda, you got the potato piece. And of course, women is the constant theme. But I don't think a lot of people realize that wherever there's been civilization, there's been distillation. And in fact, most of it was done by women all over the world since the beginning of time. And so, you know, my business uh, in many ways is honoring the history and legacy of women alcohol producers all over the world. Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't know that fact that it was mostly done by women. I'm always well, thinking of like the the man who makes his wine, but, but I guess right. spirits but, are, are different. I mean, is, is you a know different what? History? Actually, brewing and distilling uh, evolved from what was considered traditionally women's work, foraging, baking, cooking. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. That's really what it is in its essence. And so, you know, women started making, they started brewing and, and brewing actually what had nutritional value in a lot of places in medieval times where the water was not necessarily healthy and had no nutritional value and actually wasn't clean, you know, women served beer to their kids as, uh, you know, food, right? Right, right. Um, or Guinness when you're pregnant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it's, there's a wonderful book called Girly Drinks by a woman uh, by the name of Mallory O'Mara. And she talks about um, the history of women and alcohol. And it's a fascinating look at the role of women in alcohol production from the very beginning of time. Um wow. So, you know, when I think about this next phase of my career as a distiller, but also as a job creator, I feel like that, you know, there's a there's a certain symmetry there. Mm -hmm. So, So tell us more about that. So tell us about the vision for for the distillery, what that means to the people of Rwanda, first phase, second phase, you know, any way you want to tell it. Um, well, it's interesting, um, and this is about like always not getting what you want, but I had this vision for this business 10 years ago, actually. When I came back from Rwanda, having lived there with my three sons and building the first of its kind Women's Opportunity Center, I came back and was like, okay, vodka, women, potatoes, you know, we can we can make this work. So went down that rabbit hole, put a business plan together, did a market prospectus for this business. And, you know, sure enough, the the trends were really not there for this business. Um, I would have to start exporting immediately. It didn't seem like it, you know, we could really make it something that could be meaningful and profitable. And so and then the reality set in that, man, I have to put three kids through college and maybe this might not be the best time to, to be an entrepreneur and start a business. And, you know, so, you know, I shelved the business at that time for a variety of, of very good reasons. Um, and it was something that I it was it was not an easy decision. Uh, and yet it, it allowed me a to finish writing brick by brick. Um, and B, to be able to work with Aquila Institute, the women's college. Uh, and to me, that was an amazing experience. Um, 
And I, I like to think of the young women that attended Aquila as the, the daughters of the women for women, women, because the women for women, women were women who had lost, you know, everything due to mm-hmm. war and conflict. Um, and they were rebuilding their lives literally a brick at a time, which is exactly how the title came through brick by brick. But, you know, these women sacrificed everything to send their daughters to college to be able to give them a better life. And so being able to connect those dots um, in my career with from Women for Women to Aquila was was really meaningful. Um, And it's amazing when because I'm in the hospitality business now and I see these Aquila graduates uh, (laughs) who had have these incredible careers all over the country. Um, And it makes me just enormously proud to have done a small part to help launch them on their way. That's awesome. So is there a hospitality uh, program at the Aquila Institute? Were you involved in that or was that pre-existing? So when I joined Aquila, Aquila was started in 2010 and I joined um, in 2014. And so uh, what what is interesting about the Aquila model, uh, which is that yes, it's a college, but Aquila worked backwards. Instead of saying, you know, there's a, a whole lot of women who need an education there, they started with the demand side of the equation, which is where are the gaps in the labor market, so that when these young women are going to graduate, they're going to be able to move directly into the workforce. And so hospitality management was the first major mm-hmm. uh, because Rwanda has, a, you know, that is one of the top sectors in Rwanda. Information systems uh, technology was another major and small business management and entrepreneurship. Those were the top market gaps there and where we felt like we were able to do women a, a great service. And you have to understand that, you know, the women who went to Aquila, 78% of them were the first in their families to go to college. Most of them never even dreamed of a college education. And so this was a really big deal. And so to have them go through the program, but but even more importantly, graduating and getting jobs so that they could support their families was um, really uh, so important. And this is the one st- statistics that I like to share, which is that 90% of Aquila graduates were paying for healthcare or school fees for other family members. So they were really paying it forward. And so to me, that's the money shot, right? Right. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. And I mean, I was just thinking about the individuals going to school and then having that multi-generational change that happens when education can open doors that wouldn't have otherwise been there. But the fact that people are actually going across beyond their family lines. That's powerful. I mean, that's wow. I think so. And that's how you transform societies, right? Mm -hmm. One person, one family at a time. Um, At least that's been my experience. And it's often really the women, um, whether we're talking about the former Soviet Union, we're talking about Rwanda, it's the women who are driving that change. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, so the distillery is it's operational now? 
It is not. We are okay. under construction. It'll soon. be open soon. We are opening in September of 2024. Um, and so, you know, we we're building everything from scratch. But, you know, what's exciting about it is, you know, we are in creating jobs even as we're under construction. 36% right. of the uh, people on site building the distillery are women. Uh, mm -hmm. And the construction firm that we're working with is also teaching these women some of the new skills like stone masonry and other skills that they can take with them after this project is over. So, you know, one of our primary goals is to create jobs for women along the value chain, you know, whether we're talking about women, you know, potato growers, women construction workers, women, of course, who will work in the distillery, Rwanda's first female master distiller, which we will uh, we will uh, train up and, and be able to um, have uh, within our distillery. So just uh, hoping to create uh, at least 50 jobs and certainly indirectly more employment and more transformation within the community where we're operating. That's fantastic. And what what's the unemployment rate like in Rwanda for women specifically? Yeah. Yeah, well, you have about, um, I mean, there's a lot of, of women, particularly doing subsistence agriculture, um, to the tune of about 70% of mm -hmm. the population. And so uh, the unemployment rate varies um, from kind of across the board. But I think what you have is still about 50% of the people in Rwanda living at or below the poverty line. Mm -hmm. And so which means that they're earning less than $2 a day. So wow. that's a pretty striking number. And Rwanda is an interesting dichotomy in that you, you know, you go to Kigali, it's a very modern capital city. Um, and there's been a lot of transformation over the years that I've been working there. Um, but you still, you know, you have to continue to move people uh, from up, up from off-farm jobs and into, you know, higher paying work. Uh, and so employment is a really big deal. And so being able to create jobs and sustainable income for women and others um, is really where we're at. Gotcha. Gotcha. And how hard is it to do business in Rwanda? I mean, this undertaking, you know, I'm sure permitting and working with the government is, has that been more difficult here than in the U.S. or more difficult in Rwanda than the U.S.? Um, you know, it's probably uh, yes and. Uh, it's been, <laughs> you know, I uh, it's it's been a lot of complications in terms of you know, but not not because of the government specifically. Actually, uh, Rwanda is like one of the top countries for doing business in Africa, uh, mm -hmm. as rated by the World Bank. And what makes it easy to do business there is it's highly transparent. So you know mm -hmm. what the rules regulations are, um, and not to say that they're not onerous, but but you, it's transparent. And so, you know, having worked in the country for a long time, I, you know, I knew what I was, you know, getting in for. And, uh, and also there it's, there's a conversation happening too. So if something's not working the way it should, you know, you're able to have a conversation about it. The one thing that is amazing and that might even surprise your listeners is like, I've never paid one single bribe, not one, mm. to be able to do business there, which I think you, uh, you know, compared to a lot of other countries, perhaps including the United States, mm. where you have to you know, grease a few palms to get things done. That hasn't been the case there. And I've had a great deal of support, both from the the national government, as well as the district of Musanze, where we're setting up the 
distillery and agritourism sites. So, um, but it's been a lot of work. I mean, buying land uh, in Rwanda has taken us, it took us eight months uh, yeah. to buy land and you have to negotiate with each plot holder to be able to get enough land to, uh, to get this going. And so, which is why I've written book number two in the works. <laughs> Aptly named the Vodka Chronicles, which really documents the the how I built this story, because um, it's you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. I think there could be a documentary in the mix for you. You know, it, it could be. It could be. It's uh, it's. I've learned a lot. I'm growing mm-hmm. a lot. It's been super challenging, and yet I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, if you haven't guessed this by now, I'm a big fan of like shaking it all up. Um, <laughs> Well, and, and the learning is part of the fun, right? I mean, just figuring out, well, how can I do this? What's the next step? And, you know, yeah. while, I, while I, you I, might put yourself in an uncomfortable place for a minute, you have those skills then that you've acquired as a result of that experience to take them. And that's exactly what you've done. If I, you look at your background, you've taken one thing to another, to another, to another, using everything that you've learned along the way. It's amazing. Well, and we all have that, right? We Mm -hmm. all have learned things along the way. And, you know, to me, I think, you know, what holds us back is mostly ourselves. These are not, these are not external constraints from my perspective. It's really internal. So, you know, whether it's fear or guilt or, you know, uh, sort of, I shouldn't, I can't, or somebody won't like it kind of thing. I, I've really tried to rise above that as I've seen so many survivors around the world do time and again. And that's been the biggest lesson and biggest take takeaway. And really my biggest inspiration is if, if, if a woman who's lost everything um, can pick herself up and move herself to a different place, uh, li- literally and figuratively, you know, how can I not do that? That's right. right? That's right. That's a that's a that's amazing. Yeah. And I mean for everyone listening out there, I mean we all have our struggles, but it's it's great to just put that in perspective and and give yourself that motivation sometimes like kick in the butt to you know keep going and keep going. So now you lived in Ro- Rwanda for um some time and you were also raising your children. And doing all of uh, some amazing things, the construction of the Women's Opportunity Center is happening at that time. So how did you manage the balance of being a, a, a working mom in a in a country in Africa, raising three boys? Yes. That is a very good question. Um, you know, I always think of balance as kind of a funny word because, uh, you know, there's very few times that, like, I'm in balance. I always mm-hmm. think of it's something to strive for. I suppose, but I also feel like what was interesting about that time is, you you know, when I've gone to the field, when I've traveled there, I've always left my family behind. And so it made it really easy to compartmentalize my life. Um, But having the three boys and me, I didn't, I left my husband at home when we were there for that year. Um, You know, raising the three boys on my own in Rwanda and certainly traveling around the region was eye opening. And, you know, they got to see my life up close and I got to see their life up close, too. So there was a lot of mutual learning. Kind of false barriers 
you know, it's it is a kind of a false construct, if you will, because this like, oh, there's life and there's work, mm-hmm. right? It was all one thing. And um, we brought each other into each other's worlds in a, in a very different way. And frankly, our relationship has never been the same in a good way. Right. Um, and, and how old was, were they at the time? So my twins were 14 and my youngest was 11. Wow. Um, and, you know, the, the biggest thing was, you, you know, we've got this parent children dynamic, but like I got to see my three boys as human beings, as people. And I started to talk to them and engage with them as people because they were seeing things that um, were were quite adult. And right. so it it has impacted our relationships in such meaningful ways. And um, it's such a privilege to see how my boys have all taken that experience um, and made different choices in their lives. Uh, my, you know, the twins are now 25 years old. My youngest is a senior and and um, ready to graduate from college next year. And, and it's been wonderful to watch their trajectory and uh, obviously a huge proud mother. Of, of course. Did, did any of them um, sign up or, or follow global development or any interest in? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) One of them running the distillery? (laughs) No, but he could. So one of them is getting a master's in uh, public health, global health. And, um, you know, he was inspired by his work there. And actually, the two of us went back to Rwanda uh, while he did an internship uh, with an organization working on maternal health care. one of them who was an engineer went to Swaziland uh, for a couple of summers to build bridges to help underserved people connect mm-hmm. to schools and markets and healthcare. Um, and so he's part of a group called Engineers in Action and mm-hmm. um, wanting to do good work. And um, my youngest actually interned at Aquila, came back to Rwanda. Um, and also has a passion. So I'm hoping to get the engineer over to help me, the chemical engineer over to help me with the distillery, um, if I can rest him away from Colorado. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on just just successfully shepherding three men into adulthood. Because I'll tell you, I, I'm the mom of a, of a daughter and a son, and I, I say to my husband, you know, we were going to have three kids and then we had the boy because the boy just gave us a run. Now he's wonderful. He's still growing up. Um, but yeah, to have three and do so well, man, that's awesome. Well, and I'm sure I, I, the impression, right? The experience, the lived experience they have certainly made a huge impression. I think so. I think um, it was it was eye opening. You know the the experience of you know yanking them out of Bethesda, Maryland, and plopping them down in Kigali um, was um, not something that uh, I, I even for me I actually uh, didn't realize 
what it would be like, what it would feel like. And so I just kind of leaped before I knew, but it was actually an amazing experience for all of us. And, and actually even good for the marriage too. Um, sometimes you, you really do have to leap to get to a better place. That was a giant leap on a variety of fronts and, uh, and it was scary, but it was also a beautiful thing. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So, so Karen, um, one thing we haven't touched on is the, is your involvement in the every woman treaty. So can you talk a little bit about that and, and how the, the work there is, is aimed to prevent violence for women? You bet. And, you know, it's a group that I have been associated with for some time now. Um, I came in as the founding board chair and have evolved um, over time to, to work with them. But, you know, there is uh, the Convention on the Elimination of Forms of Violence Against Women, uh, CEDAW. There is a, a, a global norm around that, but it doesn't specifically address violence against women. And as we know, uh, it's such, you know, one in three women around the world are victims of violence. Um, and, you know, certainly the women that I have run across, the survivors, even at Aquila, and, and just over the course of my career, it is a constant theme. And it's just, it's its own pandemic, really. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you saw staggering numbers um, over the course of the pandemic in terms of the uptick of violence even from what it was. Um, and, you know, 50,000 young women being um, kept out of school after the pandemic because they became pregnant, could no longer go to school. Mm. Uh, just, it's been a huge issue. And so um, I feel a sense of responsibility to, to work with my colleagues at Every Woman Treaty to kind of usher this global binding norm through to set the standard of what it really should be um, and to create enforcement mechanisms um, all over the world for, for women to have and point to um, for their standards in their country. Great, great. And we'll we'll put a link to that in our show notes too so people can learn more about that. That's very important work and breaking that cycle because as you said, it's it's a pandemic. It doesn't stop without one generation, as we know, right? No, it doesn't. And it's unfortunately it's not it's not getting any better. And you know, and it's also, you know, women in this country too. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not that's happening over there, it's happening in our backyard. It's probably could be happening to our neighbor. Yep. Absolutely. Okay, so I'm winding down. How do you envision the future for women in tra transitional and post-conflict countries? And what message would you like to share? Um, I'm 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 an optimist by nature. I think you have to be to do this work. Um, and so um, I, I'm feeling positive about the momentum and the change that's happening. Um, you know. What I would share to women everywhere is that, you know, change is possible um, and it starts with yourself and moves from there. Um, you know, when I do this work in a country, whether it's Rwanda or anywhere else, um, you know, I'm a I'm a visitor. I'm a guest. It's really for the women themselves to drive the change in their own context, in their own country. But what I what I like to say is that, you know, education gives women voice, but it's really the income that gives women choice. And so if we can create opportunities for women's voice and choice 
around the world, um, the outlook is very positive. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's powerful. That's definitely powerful. Well, we will provide a few calls to action for folks who want to learn more about your story and, and stay in touch. We definitely want to have people subscribe to your newsletter and watch what's happening as the project continues to make um, great strides. And we of course want to buy your products here in the U.S. I hope so. <laughs> uh, we, we, uh, we hope it will be out in the U.S. market, the vodka, uh, aptly named Kerry Vodka, named after Mount Karasimbi, which is the distillery overlooks that in, in Rwanda. Goodbye, um, in Tito's. Goodbye, I Tito's. Know. I know. Hello, <laughs> Kerry Vodka. Female forward and delicious. Yes. Awesome. And then um, your book, Big Brick by Brick, I was able to get it on Amazon. I think the first link was sold out that I looked at on your, there was another site, I think off your website. So I would encourage people to go to Amazon unless you restock something on that. I forget where that was listed on your website, where to buy it. Yeah. It's in a bunch of places, but Amazon's probably your best bet. Best bet. Yeah. And so hard copy, it's an audio and it's actually coming out in paperback next spring. Fantastic. Awesome. And then, you know, for our listeners, I, 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 I am so inspired and I feel like, um, I've met one of the the great women of our time and your ability just to make a difference, follow your calling, be brave, not give up. I mean, you had this idea 10 years ago, a lot of people wouldn't have come back to it, but you are going to make huge, huge difference. And we look forward to supporting you. We'd love to have you back when everything opens and talk about I would love that. what's I would happened love that. since. Yeah. 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 So um, I think I'll, I'm going to close with just a little quote. I did find a Rwandan proverb And it says, um, real fraternity is not about blood. It is about sharing. Mm. And and I can't think of someone who has shared more of herself, more of her life, more of her passion than than you have in this situation. So I wish you a ton of success and just appreciate having you on. Well, thank you so much. It's absolute pleasure. And and thank you for the good work that you are doing. Um, I really appreciate it. Of course. So with that, we will sign off. Thanks everyone for listening. Please leave us a review. We would love others to find us on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. Our hope is to spark a little joy inspire, and educate our listeners in ways to live an even more meaningful life. If you have reactions to share from what you've heard, please visit our website, refirement.life, to leave a voice message. You may even be featured in a future episode. To keep in touch, subscribe to our podcast, Refirement Life, using the podcast player of your choice. Always remember, you are never too old to set a new goal or to dream a new dream. Thanks again for joining us on this episode. Until next time.